Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So this week I was talking to my my brother, who's 10 years younger than me, on my father's side. He's been married for, I don't know, about a year and a half. And like anybody who's been married for a year and a half, he has no idea what he's doing, right? And one of the things he struggles with, and one of the things I struggled with, and perhaps you did with you started that whole marriage dance, is how to integrate with your spouse's immediate family. Right? Like, this isn't always an easy thing to do. Let's just be honest, especially if the spouse's, your spouse's family is a bit different than what you grew up right, with and just different backgrounds. And so he proceeded to tell me with right now he was dealing with blowback from not wanting to and not going to a birthday party for one of the family members. And I said, do, do what? Why didn't you go? He said, well, I didn't want to just sit around and, and watch some older people eat cake. I just didn't want to do it. He said, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I said, you mean to tell me you created tension in your marriage because you didn't want to go eat a piece of cake? He said, yeah, birthday parties don't make sense to me. He said, who needs them? And I said, okay, I got that. I said, but how's that working out for you? He said, not very well. I said, you may have chosen the absolute stupidest thing to argue about in marriage, eating cake. I said, goodness, buddy, just go eat a piece of cake, put a birthday hat on, and just go all in. And he got more compassionate, um, nice uh, you know, advice for me on this topic, but I assured him his logic was absurd and silly. I said, man, you don't, you don't need to do that. I said, you're trying to operate in logic and like birthday parties and your wife's operating in feelings. Like she just wants to know you care and that you'll come be a part of what she's doing. And so he was kind of listening to me, kind of in and out. And he realized, well, until he realized that, well, this isn't just an obvious thing for anybody who's been married could see this from a hundred miles away, but I was telling him this because I actually share the same feelings as him. You see, we have the same DNA, and I've already been down this road with birthday parties. I don't like birthday parties. I don't like to be celebrated. I don't like celebrations, and I usually handle it horribly. I'm getting better. But for both, whatever reason, we both share this aversion to this celebration. I mean, honestly, let's just be honest for a moment. What's the point? A birthday party is like a participation trophy. You didn't do anything. You just kind of get one, right? You just show up, you get a cake. Did you do anything great that year? If not, no cake. I don't know. That's what I think. So anyways, when I started talking to him about this, he was like, oh. He was like, you mean you feel the same way? I said, yeah, it's silly. I don't understand him either. I said, but that's not the point, buddy. And so once he realized that he wasn't trying to convince me that birthday parties and all this was silly, that I actually understood, I had just been down the road well before him, and I can help him avoid silly mistakes that I made. And instead of dealing with the birthday party, what you want to think about is, hey, is this going to help me have a healthy marriage or is this going to cause conflict? 
And he's like, oh, I didn't know. And so here's the thing. Once I shared with him my feelings, he started listening a whole lot closer. He realized, like, okay, you mean you're not against me? I was like, no, man. I was like, I actually get exactly what you're dealing with. I said, just go eat cake. It's so much easier to take advice from someone who actually has been through what you're going through. It's much harder when you don't think they understand and they're just kind of making things up or they don't feel the same way you do. For instance, I'm a parent, right? Many of you are parents. I cannot take advice from anybody who just has girls. Like if you don't know what it's like to raise a little boy that has more energy than everybody in this room combined, then you can't talk to me about parenting. Like I'm not discounting your experience, just mine's going to be a little bit different than yours. If you're going through surgery and, you know, you're talking to somebody and you're having your knee replaced and they want to talk about how they had their appendix out, you're going to be like, hey, that's not the thing, same thing. Like, that's not helpful. That's not what I want to hear about right now. And so here's my point. We all want to hear from people who maybe struggled with the same things and kind of overcome. So I tell you all of that to say, I want you to know up front this morning that by nature, I am a very, very greedy person. I was not taught at a young age to be generous. I wasn't taught to share and to give. I didn't have those natural habits that maybe you have built into your life. The first seven years of my life, I was just me and my mama. My daddy wasn't around, and so it was just me and mama. Y'all ever had, oh boy, I was spoiled, just me and mama. That was it. I didn't have to share with nobody. Didn't have to figure any of that out. In fact, we struggled quite a bit growing up. We weren't flush with cash. And so once I started earning money, guess whose money it was? Mine. It was my money. No one tells me what to do with my mama except for my mama. She tells me what to do with my money. But other than that, it's my money. And when it comes to the church and thinking about giving, I said, well, God don't need my money. That church don't need my money. If God wants more money, he can just create it. You tell me he creates everything from nothing, create more money. You don't need mine. Mine's mine. Like, I'm good because I earned it. I did it. And then growing up, you know, coming out of the house, I barely made enough to survive. I left when I was 18 years old, and I started life with a negative balance. Any of y'all do that? You didn't start off with a positive. Maybe some of you, your parents blessed you. They set you to zero. You started out at a zero. I started out with a negative balance in life. And I didn't know this, but it takes a whole, long, whole lot of time to get out of that negative balance especially with bills and rent, and I thought I wanted freedom. Boy, I had no idea what that meant. I know you had to pay your own bills when you had freedom. I didn't know that's how that worked, right? So I had to work through all of that, and so I had to learn this idea of being generous and generosity as a grown adult with bills, and so the reason why this was so difficult for me is because I never understood what God was trying to teach me. And what I learned, and I hope you can learn this morning if you don't already know this, is that this isn't about like the church wanting my money as like if the pastor's on commission and I get a certain percentage. Like that doesn't happen. God doesn't actually need my money. That's not what it's about either. It's rather different that God is inviting me to participate in what he's doing in the world. And through giving, he's teaching me to be generous because nobody's life goal, I guarantee this, nobody's life goal is to be a selfish, greedy person alone. But how many have you met that have all the money in the world and nobody wants anything to do with them? Because they're greedy. 
It's selfishness. And you can't go undo everything you've done to all your family members and all your friends through a lifetime. Like, it just doesn't work that way. But it happens all the time. And so what I had to learn, and perhaps you have to learn, is that giving was for me. That through giving, God is joining in in my finances. Through giving, God is protecting something in my heart. Being generous is what God wants to do in all Christians. You see, he wants to work this out in the deepest part of my soul. Look at what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, chapter 21. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So Jesus tells us, if you want to care about something, put your money into it. If you value something, put your valuables into it. Like your heart will automatically follow. And the reason why money is such a touchy subject in church or in life and in general, it's because it's connected to our what? Our heart. That's why you get so upset about it. That's why people get upset about it. It's because it's connected to something deeper. It's in the inner parts of your soul. And so Jesus wants us to deal with that. And today we're going to talk about this topic of being generous. And I hope you can learn some things that I've had to learn and perhaps it'll help you because today... We are continuing our study on 1 Corinthians. We are almost done. We're in the final chapter. It's been like six months we've been working through Paul's letter. Right now we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you have your Bible with you, you can open it up. If not, it'll be back here on the screen. We're going to look at four verses from it today. Here's what's going on. We're going to see Paul at the end of his letter. Right, This is the last chapter. We worked through four weeks of him dealing with the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection. And now he's kind of summing it all up, bringing it to a close. And here's what he says, verse 16. He says, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to all the churches in Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you should put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait till I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Next slide. He says, when I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you've chose to deliver your gifts to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, then they can travel with me. Pretty cut and dry. It's very simple. Paul is making uh, the Jerusalem church needed some money. Evidently, they're having some questions about it, just like you have questions about it. If we go to raise money, you're like, why? What's going on? How do we do it? What does this look like? Same thing. They're just people. What we know is the Jerusalem church was suffering from a famine and evidently poverty. Acts chapter 11, we see about the church at Antioch kind of step in, send Paul and Barnabas, send them money. So we know this is like real time, this church, these people, something's going on, and they need some money. And generosity and helping other people out is just what the church has always been about. Always been about generosity, always been about helping other people. So instructions are simple. He says, listen, everybody participate, set aside whatever you can set aside. I'll come collect it. When I get there, I don't feel like doing a fundraising campaign, capital campaign. Like, we don't want to go through all that. Just set the money aside. I get there. We'll go together. You send some people. It'll be great. He's like, all right, Brian, so what's the big deal? Never happened. They didn't do it. It, it doesn't happen. And that's what's so cool about this because we see from the net. Brian, you're saying it's cool they didn't collect money. No, we'll get there. Just hang on. What we see in from 2 Corinthians is, they rejected this. They chose not to do what Paul says. And in 2 Corinthians, we see them 
talk about Paul, talk about the collection more and urging them to give. And listen, I don't think it takes a scholar to figure out why they didn't give. Have you been with us through this study? Would you want to give to the guy who said this kind of stuff to you? To call you out, to fuss at you about absolutely anything and everything? They're just like, no. We don't want to give to that guy right now. And we don't know exactly what happened, but he rebukes the church. And as he's rebuking them, they don't sit back and just take it. They're not passive about it. Evidently, someone stood up and was like, no, we're not going to deal with this. Because look, here's, he lays out his plans for him, verse 5. He says, I am coming to visit you after I've been to Macedonia, for I'm planning to travel through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you, possibly all winter, and then, I can send, then you can send me on the way to my next destination. This time, I don't want to take just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay a while if the Lord will let me. Next verse says, in the meantime, I will be staying here to Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There is a wide open door for great work here, although many oppose me. But here's the deal. None of it happened. We don't need to go through the timeline. You just can trust me here. But between Acts, Romans, and 2 Corinthians, we see that his plans get sidetracked. And evidently, tension rose very high between Paul and this church. Evidently, what we see, what they try to piece together from his letters in 2 Corinthians is that he ended up making an emergency visit. Like after this letter, they didn't handle it well. Paul had to make an emergency visit, had to go talk with them, deal with some things. And you're like, well, Brian, did it all get fixed? Nope. He left like brokenhearted. He left like, all right, I got to get out of here right now. Like they rebuked him. It didn't go well. And he wrote them what the scholars call a severe letter rebuking them. Rebuking like they're not receiving him well. They're not listening to his instructions. They're arguing. They're fighting. He comes and they rebuke him publicly. Evidently, there's a leadership vacuum and a key leader standing up. One of the prominent people that he's talking about in this letter doesn't lay down and doesn't take it lightly. And so they just go at it. And so evidently, so there's like two things going on. You have this person who stands up, this prominent person, probably gave a lot of money because isn't that how it goes? This prominent person stood up, decided he wants to fight against Paul, left a leadership vacuum. And what we do know is then you had other people coming in, start preaching and teaching this church some false things. And so now you have some false doctrine going around. And what looks like is happening is they start going, well, you know that, Paul? He just wanted your money. You know that, Paul? He's just trying to collect it for himself. He's just trying to get rich. Well, you know that, Paul? Well, you just insert it with all the things you've heard about pastors and money, right? You've heard plenty, haven't you? About the church and money, the things we feel, the things we think. Like that what was going on. Because we see in 2 Corinthians, look at what he does. He starts having to push back against this. He says, you see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. What's going on, Paul? We don't know. Someone's saying something about him. He says, we preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Look at 2-4. Excuse me, 4-2. He says this. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 7-2. He says, please open your hearts to us. We have not done any wrong to anyone, nor led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, some of you admit I was not a burden to you, but others still think I was sneaky and took advantage of you by trickery. It's like just because someone's an apostle, just because someone's doing some great things for the Lord doesn't mean life is easy for them. 
And they're like full, wholeheartedly rejecting him. And people are talking bad about him. They're saying he's just trying to swindle you, trying to take your money. And so they're questioning Paul and his motives about money, just like perhaps you do as well. Question and wonder, what's the point? So he explains the why behind it, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He explains the why behind this whole thing. Let's look at it together. He says this. He says, I don't really need to write you about the ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. He's like, you already know. For I know you were eager, in, or, excuse me, you, I, for I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting in churches in Macedonia and in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. Right, that's that one we saw in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. He said, in fact, your enthusiasm was stirred up. Many of the Macedonians, believers, began giving. So he says, listen, I don't need to write you about this. You kind of started this thing. You said you were eager about it until people started whispering in your ears, until people started causing doubts. But you were eager. You wanted to give. And your generosity spurred the generosity of other people. Like people started hearing what you were doing. Your generosity spurred other people to be um, generous. And that's the thing about generosity, folks. Generosity causes other people to be generous. It's just true, and the cool thing is you are surrounded right now, if you didn't know this, you are surrounded by some of the most generous people there are. First Baptist Church is an amazing, generous church. And so when we talk about giving here, it's a little bit different than many churches because I don't need to beat anybody up about it. It's never a condemning tone. It's a reminder on why we do it. In fact, we don't have to stand up here and ask you for money every Sunday. We don't have to pass out a plate every Sunday. The people here just give. You are generous people. You already know that. And it's not that we don't need money, so I don't need to stand up here and talk about it. It's that you are generous and you already understand that ministry costs money. It just does. And so you around, just, I'm just letting you know, if you plan to be stingy and greedy, this is not the church for you. You will become generous by hanging out with these people because they're just generous people. They, this is a generous church, and the reason why we don't have to talk about it is because of that, which is awesome because as a pastor, and I can tell you the board's perspective, not having to sit around and talk about money all the time is amazing. In fact, we have to talk about how to spend money. It's great. Thank you. But when we go to build that $3 million building, folks, I might talk about it a little bit. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. If you don't want me talking about it, just write a check. It has to clear. $3 million bucks will be good to go. Okay, moving on. But Paul says, listen, he says, you are generous. You are generous. And your generosity sparked generosity in other people. Let's jump down to verse 6. He says this. He says, remember this, right? He's going to talk about this principle we want to look at. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. This is the principle of sowing and reaping, right? A biblical principle, a world principle, right? This is just how life works, but also how God works. You see, giving towards the things of God, and this is very important if you've tuned out, tune back in, giving to the things of God is never thought as, as wasteful or blowing money. It's always considered an investment for future ministry purposes. Just like a farmer will sow some seeds in order to get what? A crop. And the crop produces not only food, but more seeds. It's an investment. You don't throw your seeds on the ground going, well, we're just going to throw them. What? No. 
It's an investment, and that's what the idea is. That's what being generous is. That's what giving's about for the Christian. It's an investment into the things of God. And so we give our money, and we are generous, and if we sow a little bit of money, we're going to get a you know, small crop. You sow a lot of money, you're going to get a bigger crop. That's how it works, and the same is true with money. Your money is multiplied when God gets involved in ministry. The more ministry we can do is with more money. It's just how it works. For instance, this building you're sitting in, you didn't build it. Another generation paid for this. Another generation paid for us to sit here and worship. They, do you think building this was easy? You see how many bricks are out there? Goodness gracious. We just assume everybody else had it easier than us. That's not true. Somebody put, somebody did something and they put this whole building together so we can worship this morning they invested into the future because of a previous generation's generosity here we are and we pay that forward and i can tell you for an absolute fact that lives are being changed because of that generosity and the current generosity of this church investing in the gospel yields gospel results and it's an amazing thing verse 7 he says you must decide in your heart how much to give And don't give reluctantly in response to pressure. We don't pressure people for giving. It's up to you, right? He says, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So when it comes to giving, we should do it cheerfully. It should be celebratory because we know God is a giver who freely gives us life. And so we give back to him. And when we talk about the idea of tithing, right, the biblical principle is is to protect us, right? That's where we give 10% of our income back to the Lord. That's not generosity, just to set the record straight. That's just basic. Like if your kid gets a C, it's kind of like standard. Tithing is a C. It passes. It's not an A or B. And for all you overachievers there, you you do what you want with that one. You're like, never mind, Brian, I'm a C student. I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine with C's. Like, we're we're no pressure. But so generosity is above and beyond. But the whole idea of of tithing, it's a built-in habit for a way to God to, and I'm not asking you for money this morning. We don't do that. But it's a built-in way to protect you from being greedy and selfish And having that mentality of a toddler, right? Mine, 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 mine. Y'all ever had that problem? Oh, just me? Okay, I'm the only one honest this morning. That's okay. Yeah, we that's the natural inside of all of us. It's it's mine, mine, mine. Tithing safeguards us and it teaches us to be generous. Because money is powerful. It can either control you or you can control it, but it's either or. That's how it works. So we set aside, he says, set aside what you can give. Do it cheerfully. Next verse, verse eight. He says, and God will, and you can test him on this, God will generously provide all that you need, and you will always have everything you need and plenty of it left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Remembered forever. You don't even know what you did yesterday, but check this out. Your good deeds, as far as generosity goes, will be remembered forever. Giving tests our faith. And we will find, and God promises to provide. If we want God active in our finances, because listen, here's the deal. I've never met a person in my life, maybe today after the service you'll tell me and I'll meet one. I've never met a person in my life who said, I do not want God to bless my finances. I'm fine. Everybody wants to be blessed. What is blessed? God actively involved working in your life. Like we all want that. 
It's like, hey, do you want God to bless finances? We're like, absolutely. Make it rain, Lord. I would love it. Come on, just get involved in the money. He's like, yeah, here's how you do it. Give. You want God involved? Give. It's pretty simple. It's a promise. We can count on that. He says, verse 10. He says, for God is the one who provides the seed for the farmer and the bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. So when we are generous, God is then generous towards us. God is the one who provided the seed to begin with and all that we have. The biblical principle here is called stewardship. And it's understanding what we believe is that God is the creator and the owner of all things, that we own absolutely nothing. We are simply managers of God's resources. He's the owner, we're the managers. And like any good manager, we do what the owner says. And so we simply steward and manage his stuff on behalf of him. And this is why so many people get frustrated talking about giving and talking about this idea because they haven't realized that God promises to be active and involved. So they hold on instead of being cheerfully and expectant and waiting for God to show up, they just hold it all together doing it on their own. And I believe, and I'm sure you believe, God can do far more with my 90% than I can do with my 100% on my own. Right? That's what we believe, that God will get involved. And I hear stories all the time from people at this church about God working and what he does through finances and generosity. And the reason why so many people are stressed out about finances and so many people worry about money, wondering if they're going to have enough when they have plenty, is because God's not involved in it. They're in control. They think it's theirs. They've missed that it's all God's anyways. He can give and take away at any time he wants. But when you've seen God come through in your finances because you've actually taken a step of faith, and I'm not talking about giving your leftovers, and it doesn't matter how big the number of leftovers is. Leftovers is leftovers. I'm talking about when you step out on there in faith, don't know if you can pay, don't know how you're going to go to the grocery store, don't know how that's going to work, and you step out on faith saying, all right, Lord, I need you to show up, and he does. Well, you do that enough time, you're like, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about this. He's got it under control. I'll just let him figure that out. It'll be fine. Verse 11. He says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. God wants us to be, right? And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. So not only will you be blessed, two things happen, like two other things. He says, number one, let's just be be real. The needs of other people get met. You get to provide them with what they need in real time. You get to help them. Just like when you give to the needs of the church, our budgetary needs, the needs of the church is met. We can carry out the ministry that we have planned and so on. I can tell you when church leadership or pastors and everybody else don't have to worry about money, it's awesome. Should have brought the testimony from the boards up here. They'd be like, yes, praise God. Thank you for doing that. Because it's nice when we don't have to worry about that and we don't hear at this church. Needs are met. But not only that, not only are the needs met, the needs of people's spiritual needs are being met because we're able to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We're able to have more ministries and do more things and help people grow to know him better. Like, because ministry costs money. 
So needs are met. But not only that, he says God gets the glory. Like more people, so think about this, more people get to know Jesus, more people grow in Jesus. Because listen, when people find Jesus, lives are changed. People usually have problems with church, or they have problems with uh, Democrats, or they have problems with Republicans. They have problems with their grandparents. Like most people have problems with everybody they connect with Jesus. But once they meet Jesus, whew, now he's someone who can change your life. He's someone you need to stop worrying about all that other junk. Those are excuses. Learn about Jesus. He will radically challenge you. You'd be amazed. You'll love him. I guarantee it. Everybody does. Jesus is pretty awesome. So not only does that happen in someone's life, but then more joy and more praises go to God. So your giving increases the worship to God. And if everything we do is for God's glory, this is a way that happens. God gets more glory through more people's needs being met and more people coming to know him. But not only that, keep going. He says, second part of 13, he says, for your generosity to them and to all the believers will prove that you really are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing God, um, the overflowing grace God has given to you. He says, in other words, they will see your faith by your deeds because the gospel calls you and me to generosity, so they will see you being obedient to Jesus. They will see you being a Christian, and generosity is a value of Christians, so they will see your faith in action. And what we know back here especially is that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they didn't get along very well. You remember an Acts where the uh, Jewish Christians said, look, in order for Gentiles to be like us, they've got to become Jewish. Do you remember what that altar call looked like? Some of you have been here for a while. They were like, here's what's going to happen. In order to come to Jesus, you males need to get circumcised first. Come to the altar. Let's do this now. And they were like, I don't, I don't think that's going to work. I think that might offend some people. Like, let's, let's, try, let's change the approach. And they had an argument about it. How Jewish do you have to be? And so like how to work through that type of stuff. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, Gentiles, you giving back to the Jewish people, the Jewish believers... Like, they're going to come to realize and understand that the gospel is real, the gospel has been carried out, and the people they were kind of weary to accept will now see that they ha- they're, they're getting their finances from you. Like, this could bring people together. Giving brings people together. Generosity is a big deal. He says, then when you give to them, now they're going to be praying for you. Like, this relationship will be built up. Generosity is a pretty powerful thing. Then he says this, last verse, almost done. He says, thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. Praise God. Being generous and giving to ministry is far more than just giving your money away. God has given you and given me the ability to partner with him in what he's doing in this world. And when somebody experiences life change, when somebody is able to get the counseling they need, when somebody's able to get help in their broken marriage, when somebody's kid's able to know Jesus Christ, like all of that's through our collective giving because ministry costs money. And being generous, you're investing into kingdom purposes. There's nothing greater to give your money towards than to see people come to know Jesus and grow in the gospel. And in fact, the returns are eternal. Your financial advisor cannot promise that. Eternal investment, eternal rewards. And so it's just a wonderful opportunity to invite, uh, excuse me, a wonderful opportunity to participate in what God's doing in the world. This is all through generous, being generous. So to wrap it up, why are we generous? 
What did I have to learn? Well, I had to learn and then try to trust and figure out this process of uh, the principle of sowing and reaping. Kind of like that seed, you wonder, well, is it going to work? If I plant this seed, is something really going to come up? Like I had to put my faith in action. I had to check it out. But the principle of sowing and reaping saying, hey, you're going to put down, God will get involved, and the return will be greater than you could possibly imagine, that God will get involved in that process. We have to, we give so worship increases, so lives are changed, so people can know Jesus, people can grow and learn more about being a follower of him. But then giving brings people together. When we invest in, other, uh, in others, we build kingdom relationships. Do you know the only reason why you're here is because someone invested in you? Whether it was your grandma or your mom or your Sunday school teacher or whoever built this building. Like, we're here because of somebody else. And that's generosity. That's what we're called to do. And now the question is for us, wrapping it up, did this work? Did Paul get the collection do you want to know? Oh, y'all don't, we'll just close right now then. I won't tell you the answer. Just sit here. Go read your Bible. It's in there somewhere. Go figure it out. Did it work? Romans 15. Next verse. Not on there. Okay. Scott and these slides, I'll tell you what. If you didn't know, nine times out of ten, it's actually my fault and not Scott's. He just gets the blame for it. Well, here's what Romans 15 25 through 26 says, he says, but before I come, he says, I must go to Jerusalem to take the gift to the believers there. For you see the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And what catches us off guard, we're like, what is Achaia? Who, who are these people? Corinth is the capital of that providence. So it worked. Paul got the money. You should clap for Paul. This was 2,000 years ago, fundraising. That was pretty cool. It worked. But the far more important question is, are you being generous? Are you giving? Are we willing to embrace what Paul is saying about all this and carry ministry forward? Are we sowing in order to God get involved in the reaping process? So I have found personally that you can't outgive God, and I know that's like a cliche, I know it sounds corny, but it's true. God being involved is far more better than anything I've done on my own. And as Christians, we value generosity because God is the creator. We are simply managers. He owns it all and tells us to be generous with others. And so we do it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a generous God. You give us life and every breath we have is a gift from you. Father, you richly blessed us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gives us an, a new life, an eternal life. And we know that we are to be your representatives in this world to reflect your generosity back into the world. So, Lord, we ask you help us to do this. Help each and every one of us become and be generous by, through our giving. We thank you for teaching us how to guard against greed and selfishness. And how to show, and how to show us how we become generous in the lives of other people. And Father, just show us simple ways we can do this. Simple ways that we can be known, the church can be known once again for its generosity. And reflect you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.